This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings from iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title, The Village and Beyond, Memoirs of a Cotton Mill Boy. Our author, William Hale, who joins me from Georgia in the United States of America. Welcome, Bill, to the program. Thank you. Glad to be with you. I understand from uh, looking over some of your material, you are considered to be a storyteller. Is that maybe the impetus behind your putting these reflections and these stories into print? Yes, I think it is. I, I have... Uh... I developed storytelling when I began to teach, actually. I realized that uh, one of the best ways to get a point, get something across is put it in a story form. And I I, I taught history and world history and that kind of jazz. And I just found out that in teaching, a story is is what captures people, plus the fact that uh, I had a, a professional, I was a professional public speaker for years and years, and I know that story uh, is, is, is what keeps people's attention. Uh, and if you're a good storyteller, you can, uh, you can do well at it, you know. So I have, uh, I've told stories uh, uh, and professionally, but I also tell them around the family. And <laughs> uh, my kids, my grandkids used to get me to see, uh, tell them, I sort of once upon a time, and my grandkids came up and said, "Why don't you do twice upon a time? To tell us, tell us two stories, you know, instead of one." So, uh, I'm, I'm a storyteller. I'm a teacher at heart. Yes, and I think all teachers are really storytellers. Now, did you accumulate these over a number of years of uh, public speaking, or is this something that I mean, you've got a lot of stories in here? You have uh, 254 pages. Uh, that's that's a that's a pretty ambitious work, and most of these are stories in a short form. Yes, well, a, a story a story is also, uh, in my opinion, uh, valuable to the point that it's brief. Uh, I, there's another place, the other place for a long story, but that's right, right fiction. But a, a story, to me, is is brief and to the point, and I don't, I don't know. In this book, uh, I, 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 it's, I started out telling stories, writing stories. Uh, well, when this got started, and let me go back to your question: uh, how many, these stories? I can take a story. I have the ability, I think, sometimes just to see an I see, see an idea in a thing, and tell a story. Uh, uh, I can, uh, I have that. I have that knack, I guess it might be, it could be even called a talent if I weren't bragging, you know. Well, I'll brag could, on you. I think it's I, a talent. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. You've, got, you've got several uh, sections of your book. You have a segment on family, one on village, one on the church, work, miscellaneous stories, and uh, which of those was the most fun to tell? The most fun to tell, I think, was the uh, 
stories of family hmm. uh, to me uh, because there I got to go back and find find an idea, find a word, find a moment, and elaborate on it into a story. Uh, the uh, uh, I enjoyed the, those, uh, and I, I got I think I get more mileage out of family stories. Uh, when I was a professional speaker, and I I I didn't speak on storytelling. I did leadership and executive development and that sort of kind of things around the country. But uh, it, but if you get into a story, it's, it's almost like uh, I've often said when I in, in church, if I, if the if the, uh, if the preacher can uh, start confessing a little bit of his own life, I'll listen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's so so to the point that you confess your own life in a story, and at the same time, don't hesitate to be self-deprecating. I agree with that. You know, see, to the point that you can make yourself the butt of the joke, you you endear yourself to the people who often are butts of jokes. One uh, of the stories you tell in the family segment that I, I, I haven't read it in, in its entirety, but it uh, grabbed my attention, just the title was Depression Fudge. Now, is it the fudge that's depressing, or was it the time of <laughs> time of living? Good question. Uh, no, uh, I, I, I grew up in the uh, heart of the Depression, and around, and around the cotton mills, and the, they were closed often. So the mills were closed for long periods of time, and we just, the family had to make it. But the depression fudge, I call it depression fudge, where my papa uh, uh, loved to surprise the family. Anything he could do to surprise the family, he would go to town, and one time he brought back this huge, huge white platter, big enough to put a turkey on, you know, and we had no turkeys on, but he also liked to dabble in the kitchen, so he made chocolate fudge. Mm-hmm. Taking anything we found, so he made chocolate fudge, and, uh, and, and I called it depression fudge. Because that the, the title the title came from uh, I think more the depression than than the fudge that uh, that was that to me that's one of the, uh, the to me that story is the one I go back and read often because uh, the, the closing part of it I get into the, to, to, to the my wrap up of who my mom and papa were you know mm. about a paragraph mm. you know so uh, and it's uh, but I, I like I, I did like that story, uh, <laughs> but it, it's uh, it's it's uh, I tried my best after reading a dozen books about people growing up on cotton mill villages in the South. Uh, nobody seemed to romanced it. I mm-hmm. wanted to romance the thing instead of de- describing the, the how bad things were. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, we. Uh, we had we had some tough times, you know. You don't have you don't have money, you, the, and and so you had tough times. But I I don't I didn't go to describing that. I thought, what did it feel like to to be in a family uh, when? See, I rather liked it when nobody went to work, mm-hmm. all the families. But see, I was a boy, and they, I'm sure they were devastated by the fact they need to be working. But to me, I felt, hey, Papa's home, and my brother's home, sisters. We all having fun. So I went at it from the feeling standpoint of what it was like, Beautiful. not the description. Yeah, we, we need some some of those fun stories to reflect on uh, in our current environment. So I'm happy you've oh, yeah. written this. You have another one that, that grabbed my attention, the sound, the real sound of music. Uh, was your family musical, or was this uh, like the singer's sewing machine? 
No, 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 no. It was the uh, we were uh, we were musical to the point that uh, my sister played the piano, Mama played the piano a little bit. Kind of, I call it church piano playing. Mm-hmm. You know, just, just played enough to get by, but. Uh, music was always a part of. Uh, 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 I, I, during the even back during the press, we had a Victrola, one one of those things you crank up. My brother not we might not have money, but my brother found some way to get uptown and buy a twenty five cent record, you know. And, and, and we come on, we play the thing fifty times during the next week. Uh, and but uh, music was just uh, was all around. And uh, but uh, I. I the, the the one of the points I make in this in in things is it, at some point uh, in all this my the, I brought a note home from school saying the band we was going to form a band and I knew we didn't have money for a band instrument thing like this but then I overheard my brother say to my mama one morning well, let's get him let's get him one so he he bought me a trumpet wow and off and that trumpet set the tone for my life, even to this moment. Uh, and I've often said, thank God they didn't give, give me a football. <laughs> you know, I That'd didn't, uh, if a football, anything they'd given me at that time was going to skew my life. They gave me a trumpet. I took it into the band. I went to the Army band. I did Army stuff. And then from then on, I've uh, it drove me toward musical theater. Uh, as a, as a, I'm I'm a devoted to musical theater. I think that's where I think that's where American music is making it now. I think Incredible. that's where it is. Do uh, do all of your stories reflect back on your early childhood, or are they also, uh, you know? Um, no, it it it, it 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 is not chronological at all. I didn't write the story of my life. I wrote sure. stories about my life. Right. So I, I brought. Uh, I'm I'm in in my youth. Uh, in my early early days, and then I'm in my uh, teenage days. Then I get uh, in over into work. I get into the time when I'm principal of high school and when I'm teaching uh, and that sort of thing. And then uh, when I get into the uh, when I go to the church, I kind of take it all the way through. The, the 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 thing that the first story I wrote was something I felt I had to write. I after I oh I I was on the speaking platform until I was 85 years old, and I retired simply because the airports intimidated me. You know, I just, mm-hmm. I, I could make the speeches, but getting there, it intimidated me so much. So I had all this extra time, so I'm sitting around, I'm writing, I'm, I'm doing something, I've, I've always written a daily journal, I've, I have 40 years of a daily journal, and uh, so I sat down one day and wrote a story called A Frightened Little Boy. And it's the story of how the church I went to scared the devil, scared the hell out of me. I mean, it was bad. I mean, <laughs> I was a sick little boy, and plus the fact that I had two sisters who were pathologically afraid of weather. Mm. I mean, not, not storms, just any change in the weather. And so I grew up a frightened little boy. I wrote that, and I felt what it felt like. I had hallucinations right in the middle of that time. My father died. Uh, leaving my mom with eight children in a house with no meal running and that sort of thing. And uh, I, I, I had, it ended up with, uh, in the fifth, fourth and fifth grade, I had hallucinations. I was mentally ill. Mm. I, I know now, when I go back and look at, feel my mind back in those days, I was mentally ill. But I came through that. 
I came through that. And the coda I put at the end of that story was, I'm not, folks, I'm not frightened anymore. Beautiful. And, from, and then I went on and the, several times, get over into the church section, I wrote about the evolution, really, of, my, of the faith factor in my life to the point that I had to write the last uh, story. The last part is called Me and Beyond, and it is the culmination, is the statement, as of now, at this age, I'm, I'm not through, uh, I, don't, I don't come to conclusions, I come to junctures. You know, because when you come to a conclusion, you stop thinking. Right. So uh, I, I, this is a, a, a this juncture. I wrote what my theology is in a fun in a fun sort of way. I mean, what it is and why I do what I do. Uh, one content editor of the, in the publishing most said I should take the story out and write another book. I said, no, if I don't put that in, I don't write the book huh. because it, that that story. Tales of all this, where I've all been, always been, this story has to be there. So we kept it in. It's this the story, by the way, that separates me from members of my family. Hmm. Almost like Pat Conroy, you know, his, uh, his family uh, almost divorced him because he writes, he wrote such startling things about the family and about himself and how he felt. Uh, well, my theology has separated me from some members of my family. You know they are uh, they they have not uh, I, well it's so arrogant to say they have not grown I I'm, I'm, I might be the one in left field you know but <laughs> I, th- we're different and and in some of the stories I wrote um, parts of my family did not like the stories because they were too graphic uh, they told about how what 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 poor feels like hmm. and they didn't want to be poor it's almost like I had an older sister who uh, refused to ever admit when she was an adult that she was from the cotton mill. Really? She was always from textiles. <laughs> you know, how, how you sweeten <laughs> things up. I uh, Yes, I've been there myself, I think, a couple oh, times. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> try, try not to be as I'm older, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah. yeah the, you talk about the village, the village and beyond. Is the village still standing? Yes, it is. I, in fact, I had a signing uh, on the grounds, about a hundred yards from the house I lived in last Saturday in Greenville, South Carolina, I had about 300 people at a memorial celebration, and I had a table, and I, I signed about oh, about 40 books right there, the, right there in, in the place. So it's still standing. I've, in fact, I knocked on the door about a year ago, and uh, a lady came to the door, and I said, "Don't think I'm crazy, but I I lived in this house once. Could I just walk in and see the?" Inside, she said, it's messed up right now. I said, we messed up when we were there. Don't tell me that. Uh, so she did let me in to see the room that my wife and I lived in for the first six months of our marriage. Incredible. And, and, and how small it seems now. Incredible. Oh, how small that house seems compared to what my mind, in my mind it was. But it's still there. The village is still intact. Good news. And as a writer, how did you begin the process of, of becoming a writer? Did uh, Was there another author that maybe served as a model that you enjoyed reading? Well, no. Uh, I, I can say it as no one person, but uh, mm. I, I do uh, mimic and mock many writers in my in my thing. I, I, I have uh, Frederick Buechner was one of my favorite writers of all times, I think, and... Uh, 
I, I pick up a lot of his uh, the cadence in his in his thinking because I I employed a lot of that in my speaking too. But uh, and and uh, but uh, I I tell you, in the, about four years ago, uh, I got the challenge from my dentist who had picked up a, uh, a full, all three volumes of the of Gibbons uh, the trying to follow the Roman Empire, and he said, I bought it for $6. You want it? I said, I'd, I'd, I'd take anything for $6. So I did. I read I read that, hmm. every page. And I, I learned more how to write, I think, by reading that than anything I have ever read in my life. I learned how to write. I learned how to, how to, to put cadence, put the words you're thinking into a cadence that... Uh, that flowed and don't worry about don't worry about punctuations as much as getting the idea across. I learned that and uh, but uh, oh Lord, uh, I've read I didn't start reading until I was about forty years old. You know, uh, I just uh, I read instrumentally. I read what I had to. Right. But I read, I started reading when I was about forty years old. And I can't get it all done now. I love I love biography. Uh, I love uh, science, and uh, I read more in the field of uh, science right now, I guess, than any science, theology, and philosophy. Is there uh, maybe an underlying message, even though this is a a, a large uh, number of individual tales, is there an underlying message you want people to take away from this read? Yeah, and in fact, I have, uh, and since the book was published, I have printed an insert and a, a thing I pasted in the front of all of them. It basically says, uh, "These stories I lived, and you're living one. Look around. You, 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 you also are a story unfolding. Make some notes. Observe. One of these days, you're going to look back and say, I need to tell my story.' So it basically it's that teaching thing." You mm-hmm. too have a story. You have you have a story. Re- write it. Write it someday. But learn to tell it. Learn to love it, and 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 do that. So in in the whole thing, I think I would say, yeah. At the end, I I want people to say, heck, I can do that too. You know. Absolutely, a great idea. I I uh, I admire your ability to think back and remember some of the details of your childhood and the uh, great memories you had. Uh, that would be tough for me to do, I think. And I'm a little bit younger than you, not by well, much. Well, let me tell you how, how you do that. Tell me how you do that. You, 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 work off, you work off of plausibility. I have two conversations in the book between my mama and my papa that I did not hear. Mm-hmm. But they happened. But they happened. They had to have happened. I mean... Uh, uh, one one day, uh, I, I, I recall, I'm sitting up in the top of the China Bear tree in the backyard where I, I stayed most of my life. And they, it was after supper, and they came, Mom and Pop came, sat out on the back steps. Mama's got a dish rag in her hand, kind of twirling, and Papa's got a cigarette. He rolled his own, you know, and they were sitting there on the back porch. And Papa says to Mama, May, we're going to make it. Mr. Roosevelt's going to open these meals again someday. You know, he said that. Mm. I know he said that. She, he reached over, she reached over and pinched him on the knee. 
Then she got up, and he walked. She walked away. He pinched her on the butt and said, "May you know you always been good looking." <laughs> now, that conversation, that conversation, is plausible. Mm-hmm. It, it took place mm-hmm. because I know that that's. I know that was the mood they were in. They were playful, but it was uh, playful in a tough time, you know. Uh, so uh, you don't have to remember word for word, but if you pick up the essence of who people are, you just know things. It's the, uh, uh, I think the uh, the fantasy, the fantasy I wrote uh, is a uh, is an example of unbridled. I call it unbridled creativity. Just let it go. I'm, I'm writing another book now. Uh, one of the, the story in this book about uh, Goins McDuit, a guy that uh, that came to the village. I'm writing a book, a whole book about that now. But it's basically just to let my imagination and creativity blossom and put it down in, in phrases and words. So. Uh, it, 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 everything doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to recall. It's, it's almost like uh, we know that. Uh, uh, how likely is it mm-hmm. that uh, we people can go back and and and, and 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 have a conversation with Michelangelo? He said this to them. Them. You you don't have to do that. But if you go back and look at things in the historical sense, these things had to happen. You know. So. Uh, I, I just, I let it go, let it go. Those are great words of encouragement to would-be authors that we have listening to the program today. Were there challenges in completing The Village and Beyond? The challenge was basically this. I did not write it to publish it. I wrote it just to print it and give it to the family. Hmm. And then uh, the more I got into it and had two or three people read it, read some stories and they said if you don't publish this somebody will and so about a year ago I, I, I decided I think I'll go for it and I decided if I go if I'm going to self-publish I'm not going to go uh, try try to, from the standpoint of find something cheap to do I was going to full bore I contacted our universe in Bloomington, Indiana, and from there the story they created. They took my stuff and made it the prettiest book I've ever had in my life. But see, I've accomplished what I started out to. There's two things. One is I wanted to tell stories, but also before I leave this planet, I wanted a book on the shelf that had my name on it. I wanted a, lib- a book, real library sort of book, with my name on it. I, it might be hubris, just pri- outright, you know, rank pride, but that's what I do, and I got one now. On my shelf in my library, beside, I, I, I live beside my daughter's two books, or my book. It's my book, and I feel so accomplished for doing that. And I got some people reading it. I'm getting good response from people, uh, and... Uh, and and it's uh, I'm I'm getting some signings and uh, this is it's I'm having hey, look I'm having my 15 minutes of fame and I know it <laughs> you know well you've done a great job and listeners you need to get a copy of this this will enter- entertain you and also inspire you the title of the book is the village and beyond memoirs of a cotton mill boy and our author has been William Hale William where do we get copies of your book 
Well, it, it's on Amazon, and it also my my website is www.williamhalebook.com. They can get it, get the, the, all the information there, and they can talk back to me. By the way, uh, on, and on contact if they, if they want to do that. But uh, Barnes and Noble has it. Any re- reseller of books w- w- could, could could order it just by the name, or they can go on Google. I've done this. Just put in my name and the title of the book, and it went to uh, went to Amazon, and there it is, right there, for sale and all that. And they can so keep in touch I with you by, they, I hope, by doing I hope that. Some yes. people read it and also write their own. Fabulous. Well, those are great, inspiring words. Thank you for joining me today, Bill. Thank you, sir. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Paroled, and our author is Charles Mannion. Charles, welcome to the program. Good morning. Good morning. You have uh, decided that you wanted to write a novel based on some of your experiences, but not all of them, and this is not a, a true story. It is a fictional work. Why did you feel inspired to write the novel Paroled? Well, it is very interesting. Uh, after I retired, uh, I thought, well, i got to do something. So I got this wild idea about writing a book. And I, this part of this book involves uh, someone that was in the Korean War. And fortunately, I wasn't in the Korean War, but I'm of an age that I could have been. Mm-hmm. And I guess the reason I really wasn't in it was that I could type. And I was in a Navy Reserve, and... They needed somebody to type up the newsletter every week. So they kept me in the office of the local reserve for the meetings, and all I did was type up and cut a stencil for the newsletter and never got called up as a result. But so many of my friends, high school friends, uh, were in the reserves, in the Navy Reserves, the Marine Reserves, and they were called up immediately when that war broke out. And... One of my friends uh, kind of gave me the basis for the story of his experience was that he was in the Navy Reserve and he came back after being in boot camp. I went through boot camp, Navy Reserve, and it's a different boot camp than a Marine Reserve boot camp. 
because you really don't shoot a gun and you learn how to put out a fire and things that you need to know aboard ship rather than aboard uh, land. And he came back and he had a friend in the Marine Reserve that told him we need a first baseman on our team and I can get you transferred into the Marine Reserve and you can be on our baseball team. <laughs> so he did it. And after he did it, then he got called into service and was sent into Korea right away and had no real experience with a firearm prior to getting to Korea. That's incredible. And he survived He survived all the way through the Joseon Reservoir. And several people that I knew that were there uh, told me different stories of things that happened. So I kind of incorporated it in the book things that happened to individuals when they were over there. Well, at the same time, I'm getting all these thoughts together. My brother is a television producer. Mm. He produces a fishing hole show, which is the longest fishing show on television, with Jerry McInnes. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, and he also produced some other things, and he produced a show from a prison in Kentucky. And I got very interested in that prison, and I thought, well, boy, that'd be great to tie that prison somehow into the book. So I went down and interviewed the warden and found out a little bit about the, their operation. And so the main character in the book starts out that he was in that prison for 25 years and then paroled. So uh, that was kind of the basis. And then the story just drug on. And then truthfully, you, you do something like this and you're not a professional writer and you just kind of hit and miss and hit and miss and you don't know where you're going all the time and then I just kind of quit and then finally uh, years later I thought well that's got to be on my bucket list so I got to finish that book mm-hmm. and I had someone read it and they said well you've got a mistake in the book and so the mistake was the best mistake I ever made because once they pointed the mistake out I left the mistake in. Really? And it was a legal issue. And it gave mm-hmm. me a direction to go in the book. And uh, it, it, the book was a lot of fun. I, it's surprising. Uh, I know nothing about the book industry. And uh, I did a signing in, in Florida, and, and uh, there were several fairly prominent authors there. And I sold more books than anybody at the signing which wasn't a great thing, but it uh, kind of made me feel a little good. More people wanted to buy my book. Well, it's an intriguing title, book, Paroled. Yeah. The my t- book uh, really has not sold a lot of books uh, because there's just no way for people really to know that much about the book Paroled. But in Florida, it has seen that it had more interest uh, with people in the yacht clubs and all that because it does involve a lot of Florida. It involved a lot of southern Indiana, and it involves a lot of Kentucky, an awful lot of Kentucky. It involves Kentucky politics, and it involves the Marine Corps. So it has a lot of interest. On the uh, electronic books, it has a four-star rating. That's great. pretty high. That is high. And uh, the book can be bought. 
uh, electronically, and I dropped the price. They were selling it for $11 electronically, and I dropped the price. I said, you know, it's not a big book, and people want to read it, so they've got... I've had them drop the price, and I, I initiated this to drop the price to three and a half, which hmm. it's not a big book. It's like... 238 pages. It's, I think, 227 pages. 227. Your main character is Stuart Vogel, and do you know a person named Stuart Vogel, or is this one that you created? I'm sorry. Uh, yes, your you yes, your main character, Stuart Vogel, is that someone that you yes. knew personally, or a, a character like that in prison? No, that's an invented name. I don't know anybody that I can think of by the name of Vogel, and I don't have any close friends with the name Stuart. It's just uh, I had to come up with a name. And that was the name. So, uh, did did you know anyone that that had been incarcerated for committing a a burglary burglary or a homicide that was innocent, perhaps? No. So no. this this is totally fictionalized work, then. No, well, totally fiction. Yes. And, and, and uh, the uh, the book uh, the the person was basically innocent that he was still charged and uh, it comes down to the book but uh, even being in parole from prison it is not his objective to run around to try to prove that he was innocent he tried to he, his objective was to to get on with life and try to enjoy what life he had left in him so uh uh, he went into prison as a young man and came out as middle-aged, or what I would call middle-aged. Yes. A part of the book is I have been a champion backgammon player, and after I retired, I toured the country some and played in tournaments and had some very interesting experiences playing backgammon. A lot of people don't understand backgammon, but I played it all over the world. I played it in Turkey. I played it in China. I played it in South America. And uh, it's a, a very serious gambling game. And it has always been a gambling game. It's one of the, the really big gambling games because you really can't cheat at backgammon because it's all in the open. Mm-hmm. And like years years ago on the river boats, uh, they, they used to be card charts ride on these river boats, and they would clean people out. They'd work as a team, but then after they would take so much money out of the riverboat trip, they would, they would get, they'd go and hide more or less and go to their rooms, and they'd sit there and they'd play backgammon among themselves. But it is a, uh, a very challenging game. I enjoy games. I play bridge and backgammon and golf. And I'm pretty active in my life. I travel. I've been just a, I bicycle through Europe, and I've had a lot of, a lot of wonderful experiences. But basically, in this book, I put in a lot of some backgammon, and I put in a lot of my sailing experiences. I've sailed and I've single-handed through the Bahamas. Had extensive boating experience. Part of the book is a trip down the Mississippi River, which I did that in a sailboat, and had some extensive experiences. And the experiences in the book on the Mississippi River are not necessarily always 
things that happen because uh, some of the things there had some pretty remarkable things that happened in the book that didn't happen to me. So it's completely fiction. Completely fiction. But, uh, in the completion of this book, was there an underlying message that you wanted to convey to the reader? You know, I can't say there was. No, I, I really can't. Was there a scene in here that is uh, really exciting, that has a lot of action in it, that you have uh, included in your writing? Well, there, there are several scenes. There are several scenes in the book, and uh, it, it just—it doesn't really drag. A friend of mine in Florida said, "You should have really made that. You had so much happen in the book. You should have made that a really, really big book because you have so many things happening in the book." That you should, you know, you should have had seven or eight hundred pages. You know, just telling the same story, but I didn't, and I'm glad I didn't. I think I was, I'm, I'm happy with the book. It's interesting. I, I even thought, well, this book would make a good movie. I thought, well, let's see who would be a good guy. Well, you could call me. Uh, I'm a pretty good guy. I, I just haven't had uh, real success in trying to get a movie. I've got a good friend out there in California right now, a guy from Evansville, who you might know of. Where are you located? Well, I'm physically in Texas, originally from Canada, and of course have been around the movie and uh, and uh, commercial business for a while. Maybe I know. Yeah. Well, you might not know this guy. This guy's name's Don Mattingly. Do you know Don Mattingly? I know the name. Sure do. Hmm? I know the name. Yeah, well, he's, he's a manager of the Dodgers baseball team. Correct. And he was Donnie Baseball. He was a big shot in New York, but he's from Evansville. And uh, he's very close uh, with my family. And uh, he came by Christmas and gave me a nice Christmas present. He's just a super person. And uh, I kind of thought, well, somewhere along the line, I gave him a copy of my book and haven't had much occasion to talk to him. He's very busy in his career. But I, uh, I mean, with some of his connections, he might run against the right person to uh, encourage him to do something with the book. You never know. These are always uh, always exciting times when a, a when a producer is looking for some action thriller. They might come across your story and jump all over it. I would love to get somebody like Harry Connick. Junior involved in it because I think he could play the lead role. He's uh, and if someone said if you can find somebody and get through to them, that they would be the lead role that they sometimes can go ahead because he's a pretty good actor. And he's he is a good actor. Singer. He I is. I don't know if you're familiar you are with it, but I. Yeah, he's uh, he's very very gifted. He's a multi multi talented individual, and a lot of the actors like that have connections and sometimes have their own movie production companies. So they uh, they might take a project like this and develop it. If you were to introduce this book to someone in a couple of sentences, how would you do so? I graduated from Notre Dame. And going, I want to back up a little. And my class has been very close down through the years. And uh, every year, one member of the class throws a luncheon in downtown Chicago hmm. and has picked up had for 30 some odd years for this luncheon where as many as 400 people have attended the luncheon. Incredible. Well today probably 400 people are only that many survivors of the class uh, 
because the class was a class of of fifty three and but anyway he uh, I gave him a copy of the book, and then he, after reading it, one of the members of the class was a general in the Marine Corps, so this does involve the Marine Corps and, and treats the Marine Corps uh, very respectfully because I have great respect for the Marine Corps. Do you know where we can get copies of your book, Paroled? Well, uh, they can always order them from Amazon. And uh, Amazon, uh, anybody that would buy a book and want it signed, uh, they would have to contact me. My email address is camnd53 at comcast.net. Thank you, Charles, for sharing that. That'll get a hold of them. Dot com, but it's dot net. Dot net. They can also find your book by doing a search for Paroled, and under your name, Charles, last name M-A-N-I-O-N. Charles, it's been a delight to talk with you. This book, this story, this novel is about Stuart Vogel, a fictional character who was incarcerated for crimes he did not commit. And it follows his life and has all of the action scenes that you might be looking for in a quick read, 200 and some pages. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you, Jerry. Enjoyed talking to you. Enjoyed it. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. On October 29, 1993, newspapers around the world announced that Doris Duke, the richest woman in the world, had died. Her estate was officially estimated at $1.2 billion, though other sources valued her estate at more than twice that amount. Despite her wealth, happiness eluded her. In her loneliness, she fell victim to some of the worst elements of human greed and lust for power. That's just one of many stories of a really iconic American family documented in the new book, The Duke Legacy. And the author of that book, joining us on the iUniverse line today, is D.W. Duke. D.W., thanks for being with us today. My pleasure, Clint. I'm glad to be here. Well, this is really a fascinating book as I begin to delve into this. Now, I think we should start by telling folks this is a historical fiction. Explain to us what a historical fiction is. Well, historical fiction is when someone takes uh, historical facts or a historical person and builds a dramatic story around it. 
Uh, it may be based upon a person's life in particular, and it may be based upon individual events in that person's life. So the main character in this book, obviously, is the patriarch of, of the Duke name and the Duke family, Washington Duke. So this isn't a biography, uh, per se, about Washington Duke, but yet stories that you've collected uh, over the years. That's correct. And, and what I actually did was uh, gave citations for every story uh, that's told so that the reader knows if it's based upon uh, family folklore or some type of public document so they can find out right away what it is that it's referring to. Now, we use the word Duke, and so I, I know there's some out there that will understand uh, the attachment to Duke University, but this is really where Duke University began, with Washington Duke. Tell us about that. Well, Washington Duke, uh, after the Civil War, uh, was left with nothing but uh, two blind mules, a wagon load of tobacco, a 300-acre farm, and four children. And his, his wife was deceased. And what he did was take the tobacco, which at that time everyone believed had medicinal value, and formed a company called Pro Bono Publico, which, of course, means for the public good. He believed he was creating a respiratory enhancer or a medicinal product. And he began selling that using, uh, took advantage of the latest marketing techniques and eventually built that up into uh, a fortune that his sons uh, then took over and built it up into the American Tobacco Company and ultimately endowed Duke University and another, um, many of other charities. Now, what a lot of folks may not realize about uh, Mr. Duke that we were talking about is he was a, he's a, an extraordinarily moral man that was involved in some pretty controversial things that were going on in our country, some significant things in our country at the time. That's correct. Uh, he was a deeply spiritual man. He was um, Methodist and took his faith very seriously. His brother was a minister, uh, Billy Duke, and uh, they had become involved in, in many activities involving the church. But one of the things that, that Washington had done, he had taken the position, and again, this is based upon family stories. There's no record, no documented record of this other than this book. He had, on several occasions, come to the assistance of slaves who were being mistreated. And in one instance, he actually uh, assisted a slave in escaping um, slavery. So he, he had a, a, a loose connection to the Underground Railroad. Um, and mo that's really not known by most people. Hmm. And I was in reading some of the material that kind of went on as a legacy. Was it his great-granddaughter that eventually uh, helped convince Duke University to admit their first black student? Yes, that would have been Mary Duke Biddle Trent Siemens. Um, and this would have been in the 1960s. Um, she was uh, a strong advocate of, of opening the doors to um, racial minorities, and actually the story is she convinced the Board of Trustees to uh, allow black students to attend Duke. Hmm. Uh, still a significant topic even in today's current events, I think. What, it is. What it is. Uh, when you talk about uh, your ancestors in such a personal way, I, I take it, in, in your book, how difficult was it for you to bring this together, put it together in a book to tell these stories about your family? Well, it, it all started when I was a child. My grandmother would tell these stories that had been passed down from her, um, her ancestor, who was uh, actually the same age as Washington. They spent a lot of time together. 
she had told me stories growing up, and they really didn't make a lot of sense to me. I was interested in them. It wasn't until I got to college and I found some books by Robert Durden, who's a history professor at Duke University, and I began to see some of the characters that my grandmother talked about. And so then I began to piece information together, ask more questions of her, and then started doing research and so on. So it took about 20 years, ultimately, to compile everything in this book. What do you think, in your research, D.W., made Washington Duke such a unique personality? What was his motivation that was really driving him that day, not only to build this multi-billion dollar legacy, but for the things that he actually did as a, as a service, as a public service in his lifetime? My impression is that Washington was just a very compassionate man, and that he cared very much about people and animals, and he always wanted to try to help other people. Um, as he began accumulating the fortune, I never saw that, that he was accumulating the fortune for personal benefit. I always believed he was doing it. Again, even the name of the company, he always doing it because he wanted to bring a public benefit. Uh, later on, when, when Duke was only admitting male students, he gave uh, the university a $100,000 endowment, and it was conditioned upon admitting female students. So he always wanted to try to level the playing field and make it fair for everyone. That just just seemed to be his way of doing things. And kind of in that same vein that you're you're talking about, D.W., the Duke family has given away uh, countless dollars to charity, billions of dollars. What makes this family, did it start with Washington Duke? What makes this family different from others who also have vast fortunes but have chose not to share their wealth with others? You know, I've often wondered about that, and there are there are other families that do, but then, of course, in the media today, we're hearing about certain families that don't. Um, I think it, often I find that, that that type of benevolence or that type of compassion, there's something about a way a person thinks or believes. Often it may be a religious connection, or it just may be a morality that, that they have developed where they have that compassion and they want to help others. And I, I believe Washington had that element as part of his being, and he taught that to his sons, who then taught it to the other family members. What do you think he would say? I'm kind of throwing this one at you out of the blue. What do you think a man like Washington Duke would say to some? Well, let me take a step back. There's so much in the headlines today involving racism and some very wealthy people, very influential people. What do you think he would say to them today if he could have a chance to sit down and just talk to talk to people like himself in places of of wealth or advantage? What would he say to them? You know, I think it would probably be very much uh, the same thing that that his uh, uh, great granddaughter Mary Duke Biddle Trent Seaman said was that. Um, I believe we're all in this together. Um, I take this very seriously, this business about caring for others as you would care for yourself. And that's a paraphrase. But I think that is probably what he would say. Now, on the flip side of the of the story of, of Washington Duke, we have Doris. We kind of started the interview with a, with a quote from some material that you had written about your book. And while she ended up being one of the richest women in the world, especially at the time, she, uh, it, the end of her life w- was very tragic, was it not? It was. Um, she had, she had uh, in many respects, um, become an island unto herself with respect to the rest of the family. And there's a lot of uh, suspicion and speculation about what the reason for that was, and I, I did address my theories as to the reason behind it. But 
at the time she died, she had come under uh, come under the care of her butler, and the allegations made by by people at the time, and, and which is, is addressed uh, extensively in the in the uh, second part of the book, was that they actually uh, orchestrated her murder. Some individuals actually orchestrated her murder, namely her butler, uh, was the mastermind behind it in an effort to steal her estate. And at that point, she really had no connection with any of her family members. Uh, she really had no one that she could turn to who was right there to help her. And, you know, to the extent, you know, her life may have been taken, uh, that's the theory that a lot of people espouse, um, there was really no one to help her. It was isolation, which I believe is the, the cause of that situation. Is there a lesson to learn there? When they read this book, is there a lesson for almost anyone there in Mrs. Duke's story? I think there is. You know, for one thing, there's um, there's an issue on the on the level of um, you know elder care, and and just making sure that elders are cared for properly, but being careful to, that we're mindful of what is happening to elders uh, when they get into that position in life. And more generally, of course, when a person loses connections with family and breaks off with family, you know, this can be the consequence. Um, they they have the the people that should be supporting them are no longer there. And I think that's really where she wound up. And I believe that would be the lesson that we can all take away from that is, you know, keep your family together. Keep your keep your relationships. They're important. What are you hoping, uh, D.W., that people get out of this book when they pick this up and they read it? I, you know, a lot of the, maybe the curiosity will be about the university and its foundings and, and the man behind it. But what is there some deeper things that you're hoping folks will, will come out of it when they read this book? There are. Um, you know, obviously, I, I want people to know about Washington Duke because I believe he is a, an unsung hero. You know, I believe he was a, a great man that most people know very little about. And I would like for people to learn about him and about his sons and, and the things that they did and so on. But I also believe that, that he, he was standing for things at a, at a place and time that was very dangerous to do. For example, his, his um, support of African Americans. And, and we did, when he did accumulate wealth, he started helping African-Americans develop businesses and insurance companies and other types of businesses. But I think that what I would like people to see, and, and again, as a human rights attorney, I would like people to see that, that fairness to everyone is, is a really important thing, and that's really what makes the wor- world work properly, and that's what we have lacked in so many different ways throughout history. Such a big topic today. I know it was in his time. And but it you know why so many things have changed, so many things remain the same, you know, like the old cliche that's true, that's true a lot of the um a lot of the same problems that they dealt with today we're still dealing with today uh, they may have changed a little bit or transformed, but I think a lot of the same root problems are there. D.W., I know your book just came out not too long ago, just a month or so ago. Tell us some about where we can find it, how we can get our hands on it. Do you have a website or a blog that we can learn more about your book? Uh, yes, there is a website. It's it's uh, not completely constructed, but the, the book can be purchased through the website. It's thedukelegacy.com. And uh, in addition, there uh, any bookstore can order it if they don't have it in stock. Uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon.com. It can be found just about anywhere, and it can be ordered directly from the publisher. So if anybody's interested in finding it, it's it's fairly easy to do. The name, the Duke Legacy, and and uh, uh, they can find it. Yeah, and it's just a great piece of American history. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That was our goal. D.W. Duke, the author of The Duke Legacy, joining us on iUniverse. Thanks for being with us today, and good luck. Okay, and thank you for having me on your show, Clint. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.